Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hey everybody, welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. I hope you are all doing well, that you had a great Thanksgiving. I had certainly had a good one myself. I am still in many ways recovering uh, physically, emotionally, uh, financially from wrapping my first feature film, Withdrawal. Uh, you can listen to all of our shows documenting the progress of this film from pre-production all the way through production in our withdrawal series, uh, which we just wrapped up a couple weeks ago um, with a sort of post-shoot breakdown podcast that I thought was a lot of fun. Um, Anyway, if you haven't listened to any of those shows, be sure to check them out. Today is something a little bit different. It's something that I've been working towards for a little while now. It is my very first live podcast. This is a new series called uh, Behind the Slate Presents, which is presented live at the Plaza Theater here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful historic theater. Um, I'm deeply indebted to Greg Bishop uh, and Richard Martin over at the Plaza for helping organize this, for for encouraging me and for helping uh, put it together. Um, This past week on November 26th, we screened the beautiful Akira Kurosawa classic from 1963, High and Low, in a gorgeous 35mm print. The event was... I think hugely successful. Um, it, you know, I was nervous. It was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It was a cold and rainy night, and I was really encouraged to see people come out and support the show. I think a lot of people um, had never listened to the podcast or had never had never heard of me. People were coming out for the Kurosawa, uh, <laughs> which I think is totally understandable. Um, But I think that was kind of cool that to get this kind of draw and this kind of audience engagement, um, not based on the podcast, but um, because there's such a hunger, you know, there is such a community of film lovers who are hungry to talk about it. You know, I know from my own life that I've spent the majority of my time watching movies alone at home or even alone in a theater desperate for someone to talk to about them uh you know and finding that community finding those safe spaces where there are other people who are interested in this stuff who are getting the same stuff out of it that i am is so important you know that's part of the reason why i want to do events like this is to create space for that community the other thing is that i think that these type of events are furthering the mission of this show which i have stated from the very beginning is to lower the barriers of entry into, you know, classic foreign art house cinema. These movies that are often labeled as like snobby or hoity-toity or or film bro stuff, I believe should be and are accessible to anyone. But, you know, uh, if people haven't grown up watching these type of movies, 
you know, just like with anything else, whether you're being introduced to a sport or a new food or, or, or it's just some new pastime, you need someone to come take your hand and show you how to do it. And that has always been my goal and my number one mission in doing this podcast is to turn these films into something that everyone is capable of enjoying. And in the process, uh, we can all learn more about the movies and uh, at the end of the day, we can all be certified cinephiles. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, so, uh, yeah, this live event I thought was really, really successful in that regard. People stuck around for the uh, discussion afterward. It was absolutely thrilling. And it filled my heart with joy, with gratitude, and um, uh, and I cannot wait to do it again. Now, having said all that, it was also a learning experience. Uh, it was not until I got home and uh, uploaded the audio that I had um, taken directly out of the soundboard that I realized that I had a few sound issues. I don't know if it was the gain on my Zoom H6 recorder that was plugged into the soundboard. I don't know if it was the mic was particularly hot, but for whatever reason, there are moments when I am talking into the microphone when I am peaking or, or clipping. Uh, you know, it gets distorted. I'm basically, I'm, I'm too loud. There's, there's too much sound going into the microphone, and my voice sort of turns into like a crackly fart. Um, it doesn't happen throughout the whole audio, although it is quite prominent when the audio starts, so uh, just try to grit your teeth and get through that. And it, it does get better, although it persists in, in moments where I get loud again um, throughout the duration of the recording. Additionally, after the film is over and we go into the talk back, I, at some point, and I, and I don't really know why, I stopped handing the microphone to audience members. Uh, for some reason, I had it in my head that like, I would ask questions and people would just shout it out and I would be able to summarize it back. And and of course they didn't. People wanted to talk. People had brilliant ideas that they wanted to share. And I, like a dumbass, uh, stopped handing them the microphone. Um, this is uh, this is just a, a terrible mistake on my part. Um, and it's something that I will not do in the future. Uh, but uh, I, I definitely did it this time. So unfortunately, uh, some great audience feedback was lost um, because I did not hand the mic over. Um, so I, I do try to like kind of summarize what people said. And um, I have had to cut the, um, the after show uh, uh, discussion a little bit short to try to accommodate for this error. So my mistake, uh, you live, you learn. And, uh, but I do think that this audio is still worth sharing despite its flaws. And so without further ado, here is our very first live podcast from the beautiful Plaza Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. I hope you enjoy. All right. Thank you so much, Britt. And thank you so much, everybody, uh, for being here. This is, uh, this is amazing. This is uh, very exciting for me. I'm a little nervous, uh, this being my first ever uh, live podcast event here. Um, but I really appreciate you guys coming out on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, uh, really huge thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I just want to show of hands, with it being you know right after Thanksgiving, I think we can settle the age-old question of what is the best Thanksgiving side, macaroni and cheese or post-war Japanese cinema? Uh, let's let's see hands for macaroni and cheese. 
Let's see hands for post-war Japanese cinema. All right, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, guys, it's so amazing to be here um, at the plaza. I, I did a little podcast on a, um, Archive Atlanta, which is an amazing Atlanta history podcast hosted by Victoria Lemos. And uh, I did a little guest episode where I talked about all the cinemas that Atlanta has lost over the last hundred years. Um, and it's really shocking. I mean, this city has incredible cinematic history and most of it is rubble. This place exists. Uh, the fact that the plaza is here, the fact that the plaza allows artists like me to come out and host special screenings like this is incredible. Uh, I am so, so, so grateful. A huge shout out to Richard Martin and Greg, uh, excuse me, Richard Martin and Greg Bishop for helping put this event together. I could not have done it without them. Um, so everybody, let's give it up for the plaza, please. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, now, I promise I'm gonna keep the, we getting a little feedback here? You guys hearing that? No? Okay, good. All right, I'm gonna keep this little podcast portion brief because the film is on the longer side. So I wanna be considerate of y'all's time tonight. But I wanna start off, really, anytime I, watch an older film, I try to start, go back to first principles. Why do we watch old movies? I mean, they're different than the new films, they have a different texture, they have a different vibe. But I think that the question, uh, the answer to that question actually gets down to a deeper question, which is what is the inherent magic of cinema? Back when movies were invented in the 1890s, the essential magic was that this was the first time in human history, and in fact, it is the only invention in human history to this point that captures the passage of time. I mean, yes, we could talk about like music, but that's not really the full spectrum. The visual component is still to this day the magic of cinema. And we take this for granted because we're so inundated with moving images all the time, but every Instagram reel, TikTok video, whatever, is capturing a moment in time that will never return. And in this way, these motion pictures become windows into the past. And we can use them to learn about the people, places, and things that are no longer here. And I find this to be absolutely fascinating. Now, when I think about examples of that quality, I think that this film, Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, which premiered in America 60 years ago today, is an absolutely perfect example. And so I wanna try to build out this window into the past with a little bit of context. Uh, and I start with this context just by comparing what would the average theater goer in 1963 have experienced you know, before they saw this film and just kind of compare it to myself, right? So look, I'm 34 years old, which means that uh, new parts of my body are aching every day and I gain about two pounds a year. Um, but it also means that I was born in 1989. And so I've experienced, you know, kind of a fair amount of earth, you know, of world events that have changed society and culture. Uh, I was born, I came of age, I should say, in the post-Cold War 90s, you know, Michael Jordan, Bill Clinton, Pokemon, big earth-shattering changes. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, my parents got dial-up internet for the first time. It was a pretty world-changing event. Um, when I was 12, 9-11 happened. I still have not forgotten. Um, when I was 17, someone guided me to a party using the very first iPhone, and it absolutely blew my mind. You know, I've 
experienced, and I'm sure all of you have as well, we've experienced presidents and pandemics and climate change and wars, and yet all of this pales in comparison to what a 34-year-old Japanese theater goer would have experienced walking in to see high and low in 1963. Let's just imagine for a second this, this theoretical Japanese audience member. Let's, co let's call him Haru, okay? Haru would have been born in 1929, and his parents would have been filled with boundless optimism. Japan was the most rapidly modernizing country in the world. They would have told him stories about his great-grandfather who could have been a samurai, which, which this absolutely blows my mind. While this city, Atlanta, Georgia, was being burned to the ground in the Civil War, Japan was fighting battles with samurai. That is absolutely mind-blowing. They rapidly developed during a period called the Meiji Restoration to the point where Japan became the first Asian country to defeat a European country in a war in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. After the First World War, during which Japan fought on the side of the Allies, Japan instituted these incredible reforms of, of democracy. They expanded the right to vote. They created houses of Congress. There was an incredible uh, uh, optimism about what the future held. But by the time Haru was born in 1929, these reforms were beginning to be dismantled by a far-right militarist cult within Japanese society. As Haru began to learn how to speak and learn how to walk, Japan under, was experiencing some incredible changes. This militarist sect was taking control of the country. In 1930, the military, operating completely separately from the Japanese government, invaded mainland China and occupied Manchuria, which is essentially the start of the Second World War. They entered, for Japan at home, they operated from a, 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 what has been described as a government by assassination. In four years, two prime ministers and countless numbers of moderate politicians were assassinated by this far-right militarist sect that took over the country. As Haru came, uh, got older, you know, seven, eight, nine, he probably would have seen his father, his uncle, maybe his brothers leave the country to go join the army as Japan became bogged down in a series of increasingly uh, uh, bloody and, 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 and terrible wars, both in Korea, mainland China. They expanded across the Pacific into Asia. And all this culminated when Haru turned 12 years old and most likely celebrated the destruction of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor. The celebration would have been short-lived over the next three years the, war, the tide of war turned. And by 1944, Haru would have lived with the sound of planes and air raid sirens. In 1944, America captured the island of Saipan, which gave them an airstrip that allowed them to fly uncontested bombing raids over the Japanese mainland. Over the next year, they dropped millions of bombs. And these weren't just any bombs. These were incendiary bombs. Now, why would they drop incendiary bombs? Because most of Japan's cities were built out of wood. The goal was to create what is called a firestorm. These firestorms were gigantic infernos with flames reaching miles into the sky. Temperatures would have raised to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit if you 
weren't burned alive instantly. You might die from the air being sucked out of your lungs by hurricane-forced winds created by the updrafts. It is a horror that is hard to imagine. Over a million people died in these bombing raids, and half of the total area of Japan cities was destroyed. That was the fate that was met by Yokohama, which is the city featured in the film tonight. All this, of course, was before August 6, 1945, when the first offensive atomic weapon was dropped on Hiroshima. When Haru turned 17, he would have heard the emperor's voice for the very first time as he came over the radio and announced that Japan, for the first time in its 2,000-year history, was surrendering to a foreign invader. The Americans came in and completely overturned Japanese society. They did away with the old government, they wrote a new constitution, they gave women the right to vote, and they censored all of the films and books. Now, horrible food shortages, electrical shortages, medicine shortages lasted for about seven years until a new change took place in about 1950. And it's ironic because what one war destroyed, another war built, I guess you could say. When North Korea invaded the Southern Korean Peninsula, the United States relied on Japan as a landing zone for its military operations. They gave giant contracts to Japanese industry to supply the troops, and this sparked an incredible economic boom in Japanese society. Over the next 20 years, Japan's economy grew roughly 10% every single year, which is mind-blowing. Within another decade, Japan was once again one of the richest countries in the world. It was called the economic miracle. However, this economic miracle was operating from a philosophy that was imported from America. It was a pro-consumerist philosophy. All this led to incredible wealth and incredible wealth inequality. The Japan of the mid-1960s is a lot like the America today. There's two Japans those of the haves and those of the have-nots. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the world of high and low, or as it is more appropriately known in its Japanese title, Tengoku Tojigoku, Heaven and Hell. Now, uh, as you watch the movie tonight, I want you guys to pay attention to two elements. The first is, how does Kurosawa use this rapid modernization in the telling of the story? What sort of inventions, what sort of changes to society, what sort of images does he use in this film to show this incredible change that Japan has undergone? And number two, what are the devices of surveillance? How does he use surveillance and perception in this film to get his point across? For those of you who can stick around, I'm going to come back after the film. We're going to have a brief little talk about some of these elements. But for now, I'm going to shut up. We can sit back and enjoy Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. Thank you very much. At this point, the lights came down and we watched the 35mm print of High and Low. The movie is absolutely fantastic. I really can't speak highly enough about it. If you are interested, you can now stream this film on Criterion Channel, Max, or you can rent it from Apple TV or Amazon Prime. Of course, this is as of 
November 30th, 2023. So, um, uh, things might change as they often do on streaming sites. Uh, in any event, I would highly recommend the film. It runs about two hours and 20 minutes. Um, and considering that length of film, I was thrilled that about half the audience stuck around for a little post-film discussion. Um, as I mentioned before, I stopped handing the microphone over and we lost a lot of the audience feedback. I deeply apologize for any audience member listening, hoping to hear uh, uh, their comments. I am so sorry. This will be fixed uh, next time. But without further ado, here is the discussion after the show. What a film. What a film. Does anybody um, uh, just have any sort of instant reactions, anything they want to share uh, into the mic? Uh, any thoughts? Any uh, uh, questions? Any Anything you liked? Anything that surprised you? Anyone got anything off the top of their head? Um, oh, I got someone right here. All right, I'm going to run the mic down to you. Uh, tell us your name and what, it is, what you thought. Hey there, my name's Luis Ortiz. I'm from Puerto Rico. I grew up watching Kurosawa movies in Puerto Rico. My dad's a big fan of them. Um, and I, I came here to Georgia and Atlanta to work in the film industry and something that I'm, I, I do lights for film. And uh, something that you just you know notice immediately is just the pacing, man. I mean, he just stretches that rubber band as much as he can. And you see it today, you know, with Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson and some other masters that, you know, can harness that. But you don't see it a lot in like mainstream movies like Marvel or even TV, like everything needs to be fed immediately. Even even moments of exposition, like we were pretty much in that first room for I would say like 30, 45 minutes. I mean, yeah, like an hour, dude, that you don't really see that anymore. Like, you know, it's just really taking your time to set up the staging for what's gonna happen. So that was great. Love it. Yeah, super, super deliberate, super deliberate filmmaker. Yeah, I got one more over here. I really haven't seen very many Kurosawa films, but I am familiar with some of the other like mid-century Japanese directors like Yasujiro Ozu or Masaka Kobayashi. And Ozu's films in particular, and I noticed that the boy who was kidnapped is the younger brother in Good Morning for anyone who's a fan of Ozu's. But all of those have this like really sort of, I don't want to say sanitized, but a very saccharine domestic vision of Japanese life. And this was the first time I had really seen this industrial cityscape of like mid-century Japan and just sort of the the darkness of all of that as well as like it going so far as to like the graphic death of like someone dying of a drug overdose or something that you would never see and you know Kurosawa's more pastoral like history focused work which I have seen or even stuff like and you know anything from Ozu or anyone else from that period it was really that image in particular which is particularly shocking and interesting and a view of a part of Japan that I hadn't seen before this movie I wouldn't say Nice. It's a great uh, point to bring up uh, Yasujiro Ozu, uh, who Kurosawa is often compared to, because Kurosawa kind of is uh, often criticized as being not Japanese enough. Like Ozu is the is the real deal Japanese director. Kurosawa is the one kind of overcome with Western influence. But I would argue that this film is actually uh, much more in the opposite direction. I'll get into that in a little bit. I'll tell you a quick uh, story. My first time seeing this film was about 10 years ago. And um, uh, man, it just blew my mind. And I went and I got together with the, the girl that I was dating uh, at the time. I got with her the next day. I said, oh my God. 
God, you would not believe the film I watched last night. Oh my God, so it's this shoe salesman and then, and then the kidnapping and, and you think it's his son, but then it's the other guy's son and, and, and oh my gosh, and then the, the, the drop off on the train and, and then the cops go after him and, and, and oh my God, then there's heroin addicts, there's heroin addicts. Oh, and I, and I go through the whole story. I tell the whole thing. It took me like an hour and a half to retell this film. And uh, I'll never forget what she said to me after that. Uh, she looked at me and she said, why didn't we just watch the film? <laughs> Classic film bro lesson. I, that's why I try to always ask now if I'm going to talk to someone, I'll say, would you like me to tell you about this movie? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, did anyone, I, I sort of gave the little prompt at the top, did anyone notice sort of any elements of modernity that like really struck out to you? Just, just shout it out. Yeah, so that difference between uh, between space with Gondo's house up on the hill. Uh, fun fact, I think um, at this time, 1963, less than 1% of all Japanese households had air conditioning. So the fact that his house has air conditioning is like this major signifier of his wealth. Any other sort of uh, just, just textures of modernity that anyone else noticed? Anything? Yeah, just shout it out. Yeah. Great point about Gondo's house in particular. I mean, Takeuchi's as well. Gondo's house, I mean, he has doilies on his couch. I mean, it's like he's got doilies. This is not tradition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's got, he's got all the, and there's nothing Japanese in his house except for uh, Kaiko's uh, dress, his wife's dress. Uh, a great little touch there. Just a few things that I just kind of want to throw out here. You know, um, first of all, he works for a shoe company. Shoe companies were a major uh, staple of Japanese culture because in Japan, uh, people wear shoes for many different things. So this was like big industry in post-war Japan. Um, uh, 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 of course, his kids are playing cowboys and outlaws. Uh, this is not, a, you know, a Japanese, you know, sort of like role-playing game at all. This is all like Western stuff. Um, Gondo tells his son to do this kill or be killed philosophy, right? This is like his corporate mantra that he's trying to imbue upon, upon the kids. Of course, we mentioned the air conditioning. Um, High-speed train. The, the, the midpoint of the film happens on a bullet train, right? Um, uh, this is all, all modern Japanese stuff that's... Uh, that's being put in this movie. Uh, one fun thing that I thought about, or that I learned while researching this film, the trash burning that gives the critical pink, pink smoke clue, this trash burning is a byproduct of the consumerist society that Japan was building. They, di they didn't know what to do with all their garbage, so burning trash was a major way for them to dispose of refuse. Um, of course, the heroin, which um, some people uh, you know, have a lot of questions about because Japan has these very stringent drug laws and there's not as much drug addiction in Japan as in America. But I think that Kurosawa put this in, in particular, and this just absolutely blew my mind to learn. So when Japan had colonized this puppet state in China, uh, in Manchuria, they actually had a state-run monopoly on opium production. And they not only were using uh, the opium to make uh, um, morphine and, and heroin for their troops on the front, but they were using it to enslave Chinese workers to work in these hor horrific mine conditions. And because they were addicted to heroin, they couldn't leave the workspace. And so as in most cases with war, these atrocities that are committed abroad end up coming back home. And that's why heroin addiction was more prevalent in Japan after the war um, than any other drug. 
Um, okay, what about some of these uh, devices of perception? Anyone notice any sort of de uh, perception devices? If you just want to sort of shout it out that you noticed from the movie. Yeah, what, what do you got back there? Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, the, the, the famous, beautiful reflections in that final scene. Uh, anything else? Any, anyone got anything else uh, that they noticed from the film? Yeah, what's up? Takayuchi's binoculars, yes. Exactly. So Takayuchi's using binoculars. You also see the cops when they're in Gondo's house using these funky binoculars to look underneath the drapes. Um, of course, also in Gondo's house, we've got the recorded phone calls, uh, all the sort of surveillance of tracing the phones. You know, this is all like modern technology, but with this extra emphasis on perception and the ability to look at the other and perceive the other. Um, now, I'm going to kind of use my notes here a little bit. Don't mind me. Um, one of the things that I absolutely marvel about this film is that on its face, this is like a very simple police procedural. You know what I mean? Like it's basically a two hour and 20 minute episode of Law and Order. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like I've never gone running to a girlfriend to tell her about an episode of Law and Order that I watched. So what is it about this movie that separates it from other police procedurals? I think that this, oh yeah, you got, a, you got something there? I think that's a, it's an absolutely great point. Um, so the moral, so what was just described was sort of the moral uh, pressure that's put onto Gondo and the change that he goes through as a character in the film. However, you know, I think that um, that is an important part, but there's actually a tricky thing about it in that Gondo barely appears after the midpoint of this film. And in that sense, he is not a true protagonist of the movie. I mean, he's the one who undergoes the change, but at the same time, he's not a true protagonist. Yeah, we got uh, something here in the back, yeah. Yes, yes, I love that. So that fracturing of the narrative and the fracturing of the weight of the protagonist, it, it creates this prism through which we sort of view the story. Now. Look, I, I'm never one to sort of say, oh, uh, uh, you know, a filmmaker did this and it means this, right? Like the pink smoke means something and the sunglasses mean something. You know, I always kind of think that that's like conspiracy thinking. Um, instead, I think that we can just look at what the, the textures and the very um, materialist, the materials in a very materialistic sense of what a filmmaker uses to try to get to what they're trying to say. Now, look, I think it's very clear Kurosawa was uh, experiencing some disease with uh, 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 the modernization of Japan. Um, I think that he feels uh, uh, very clearly upset by this sort of Western consumerist influence over Japanese society. Um, you know, I think looking at Gondo's ultra-modern house, um, the fact that the, uh, Takayuchi was able to um, take advantage of this, uh, uh, the windows on this modern invention of the train. And then of course, by the time we get to hell, uh, the fact that we see this sort of depravity living in proximity to these American soldiers and sort of American music is, it, it, it really, he's putting his stamp on sort of what he sees as the problem. And it's interesting that only when Gondo throws away his fortune in order to save a life of a child and therefore save his soul, does he return to 
the simple artisanal values, you know, he gets out his old tools and he, he, he refashions the suitcase and sort of returns to what I believe Kurosawa believes to be a more authentic way of living. Now, of course, we mix this with the devices of perception and the way that, just like was described so beautifully uh, uh, by you, that this, the way that people are looking at each other and all of a sudden we, the audience, are looking for like, who's looking next? And we begin to get toward uh, what I believe Kurosawa's main point is. But I think that Gondo, when we meet Gondo, he is caught between the two, right? He wants to be in control of this major company, but he wants to hold uh, onto the values of sturdy shoes and good craftsmanship that got him there, right? By the midpoint of the film, when he chooses to throw away his wealth and go start back from square one, he is making his decision. He is choosing the path of the artisan and he is living with his fate. Kurosawa is a big believer in sort of enlightenment through suffering, uh, that you must undergo and lose, every, you must undergo extreme trauma and lose everything in order to arrive to some sort of enlightenment. Now, I think that um, what Kurosawa was really getting towards here, though, is a, is a fascinating question that I think he was really troubled by. Why is it that the more wealth that we have and the more ability that we have to surveil each other, to watch each other, why is it that the more of that stuff we have, the less we are able to see the structural causes of crime, class struggle, and human suffering? You know, he's, he's looking around and saying that material abundance has not solved you know, the essential misery at the core of an alienated and politically dispossessed people. And the way he does this, I think, is absolutely genius. Yeah, hey, Greg. Okay, got it. All right, we got five minutes left. I'm gonna wrap this up. Okay, so the way he does this, guys, is absolutely brilliant, and it comes back to Gondo. Is he or is he not a protagonist? Now, on the one hand, yes, he is a protagonist. He's the one who undergoes the change of the film. But as we've noted brilliantly, at the midpoint, this film fractures into a million perspectives. And by the end, when Gondo comes face to face with Takayuchi, and he goes to seek the, to try to find an answer to why this terrible crime happened, he is left cold. That window shuts, and he is just as ignorant, I would argue, as he is at the beginning of the film as to why this happened to him. And I think that this, in, this is where the brilliance lies because every character is locked out of the why. No one gets the intellectual catharsis. No one sees past the veneer of, of why these problems are happening, but the audience does. We do perceive the structural causes of this crime. We do empathize with Takayuchi living down in that sweltering heat. We do empathize with Gondo that despite the fact that he's a multimillionaire, he cries for his son and he ultimately does the right thing too. This is an incredible gift to be given to an audience, to take it all the way back to my imaginary audience member, Haru. I believe that it was Kurosawa's intention to imbue upon this person that despite all the horrors they had experienced in their lifetime that they saw firsthand, they would walk out of that theater that day with a deeper empathy and understanding for their society and for the human condition. And that the next time they experienced resentment or greed, they may think twice about what they do with those feelings. 
I want to thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. This is the very first Behind the Slate Presents. You can uh, listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search Behind the Slate. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, at Behind the Slate Pod. And until next time, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for coming. So that was it. Our first ever live podcast, Behind the Slate Presents. Uh, I, I did not know if this would be a success. And... Um, I was really nervous about the whole thing and I was just, I was so thrilled and encouraged and joyful as the way it came off. Um, and I'm thrilled to announce here and now that we will be doing it again in January, 2024. So if you want details for that show, you can follow me at behind the slate pod on Instagram and uh, we will put everything out there as to what movie we're playing and what night we're doing it. I hope to see you there. Um, as far as what else we've got coming up, um, there's a lot. I've got some interviews uh, that I'm planning right now. I am also beginning work on the next history series. I cannot wait to get back to the history. I can't wait to start talking about other people's movies and not my own for, for the first time in a while. Um, However, it's going to still be uh, several weeks at least before I can get that finished up and written and out to you. Um, so just stay tuned. We got more stuff coming. In the meantime, it is up to you to really help this show out. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Hit us with those five stars. And I'll be honest with you, it has been a minute since someone has left a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Could you be the first one to do that in a while? I would really, really appreciate it. You know, that's a huge way that this podcast gets out to more people. Of course, you can tell your friends, you can tell your family. Uh, go back, listen to our history series on Charlie Chaplin, Melvin Van Peebles. I guarantee you will not be disappointed if you are scintillated by cinema, if you are moved by movies, if you are a hussy for history, you are going to like this show. You can follow us on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod, on TikTok at Behind the Slate Pod. You can email me behind the slate pod at gmail.com. And until next time, that is a wrap. I'm no